0: No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious. Misfit. David. Torso and Pinches. Matt. Hangman Strain. Shelby. Andrew. Axios. Richard. Hartman, Skipper, The Sextant, Brian, Cap'n Crunch, Roger, The Jolly, Vibran, Artemis Killmeister, Carcos, Rotary Coast, M.D., Lost Again, The Navigator, Doc Lindsay, Pitlock, Ward, Workman, Chairboat, Gunsway Sally, Cannon Monkey, Rumrunner Runner, madame anita sparrow hefe bull verdigon rumgut and bootstrap spaley Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Here in the U.S., we've never really had a serious threat to our system of government. And I know, as soon as I say those words, most of you will be silently screaming at me about this or that thing that was a threat to our democracy in our two and a half centuries of history. And yeah, we've had our share of near misses. And I also know that there are others who were probably vocally screaming at me about some of the things that are happening in America right now today. And sure, some of those things are worrisome. But as a nation so far, we've weathered all of that. What I'm saying is that We've never had, you know, a monarchist army take over a state and declare loyalty to the crown. The communists never marched in and took over the capital, tried to oust the sitting government. No one ever burned down the Reichstag, although that one does hit kind of close to home. And I'm not saying there have never been groups that wanted to do so, or even tried to pull something like that off, but they never succeeded. And I'm not 100% convinced that that's a good thing. Now, I want to be clear, I don't want any of that to happen today. But if in, you know, 1830 or something, there had been a brief blip of monarchist takeover, that might not have been so terrible. If you look at France, after the Bourbon Restoration, and then again after the Second Imperial Period, and then again after the fall of the Nazis, they had opportunities each time to look at what had been working and then reconfigure some of the things that needed to be changed. You know, that kind of thing seems to be something of a good and healthy forest fire to clear out some of the underbrush, as long as it happens in history. It's certainly not something I want to live through. And, of course, we've got something similar. We've got the Civil War. And, in a lot of ways, that was an opportunity for the U.S. to rethink some of its forms and functions of our political system. But even still, the Confederacy wasn't a threat to our system of government. Their constitution, their system of government, was based on that of the Union. And at no point was there a plan to overthrow the union and institute a a new form of government. So tumultuous, yes, but still doesn't quite fit the criteria. I'm talking about all of this because I'm trying to picture what it must have been like to be an English person in 1700. For about a century now, it's been wall to wall historical wildfires. Civil War, Restoration, Revolution, it was, you know, these were events separated by decades, but it had been tumultuous. And while we know today that their system had just become stronger and stronger for all of those world-shaking events, at the time I think it must have felt like they were living atop a house of cards. Especially ever since Queen Mary died and they just had this Dutchman sitting on the throne. Seemed like a stiff breeze could have come along and toppled the whole project. And for a lot of people living in England, it must have been a bit scary, but, but there were some people huffing and puffing. This is episode 289, It's Treason Then. It's tough to define exactly what it meant to be either a Whig or a Tory in 1700s. It's even more confusing because people tend to use modern politics to define what those two parties were about 300 years ago. You know, there's a lot of people that still call the Conservative Party in the UK the Tories, even though the Tory party hasn't existed for over a century now. And broadly speaking, that's how it breaks down. Tories were Conservative, Whigs were Liberal-ish. But those words didn't mean then what they mean today. I like how Richard Zacks puts it. He writes, quote, In Captain Kidd's day, Tory became associated with good old England, a land where government should be frugal, taxes low, individual rights respected, standing armies avoided. End quote. Now, while that's mostly accurate, I think he's conflating it a bit with modern-day conservative ideals. For example, when they talk about individual rights, we need to remember this was 1700. They're talking about the individual rights of a tiny clique of hyper-wealthy aristocrats. The taxes were low because of the tiny clique of hyper-wealthy aristocrats. Part of the reason it's so hard to pin down exactly what a Tory or a Whig was is is because the monarch was still such a central figure in the political scene. Whoever had the monarch's favor was usually in power. Political positions tended to shift based more on that metric than real ideology. Trying to win the king or queen's favor tended to make for a bunch of flip-flopping on your position. Were you pro-war or anti-war, pro-taxes or anti-taxes? That depended on what the king wanted and where you stood trying to gain his favor. But then, in about 1699, an opportunity arose that the Tories took advantage of. What if, and I know this is crazy, guys, but hear me out, what if we tried to gain power not by currying favor with the king, but by openly opposing him. Now, this would not have worked for most of English history. You know, if the Parliament tried to oppose the king's position on something, he just cancelled the Parliament. The few times that it had happened in English history are some of the most famous periods in English history when they're signing the Magna Carta and naming toilets after King John, right before they cut off the head of King Charles I, or right before they dethroned and exiled King James II. Some of those big, tumultuous, world-shaking events that we here in the States have never really had to experience. But in this case, here in 1700, Thanks in large part to King William III and his policies, it might just be possible to oppose the king and his policies without overthrowing him. Then again, depending on how the king reacted, it might not. You know, if he decided to, say, raise armies and arrest all the Tories and seize all of their lands, it might turn into another civil war. No one knew what would happen when they chose to oppose the king. They might just have to cut off yet another monarch's head, but that wasn't the goal here. What the Tories were trying to do was to wrest some political power from the hands of the king through political means, while keeping the monarchy and their system of parliamentarianism intact. The tool with which they planned to enact this bloodless coup was William Kidd. We last left William Kidd on board HMS Advice, bound for London. Now, he knew his situation wasn't great, but he still had some hope. After all, he had pretty good explanations for why he had done everything he had done. Except, maybe, for, you know, the murder. And despite everything, he had Lord Bellomont. Bellemont was the one man who could back up everything that Kidd had to say. Of course, that only works if Bellemont had reason to choose to do so. What neither Kidd nor Bellemont knew at this moment was that the Tories were just busy grinding up all of those good reasons in the House of Commons and on the newspapers. John Howe was an MP in the Commons. He sat for Gloucester. That's... Bristol, a county with an interest in maritime trade. Now, John Howe was an interesting guy. He was a Whig early in his career and one of Queen Mary's courtiers. But he was brought up on charges for wounding one of his servants. Now, that could mean a beating or something more serious like a stabbing, or it could be code for a sexual assault. Now, John Howe pleaded guilty, but he was then pardoned for his crime because laws don't apply to important men. However, he was fired from the Queen's Council. Thanks to this, what Howe saw as an insult, he decided to turn coat and side with the Tories in the Parliament. John Howe was the first MP to really latch on to Captain Kidd and to use him as a bludgeon against the king and the rest of the Whigs. In a fiery speech in the House of Commons, John Howe said, quote, Our rulers have laid hold of our lands, our woods, our mines, our money, and this is not enough. We cannot send a cargo to the furthest ends of the earth, but that they must send a gang of thieves after it. End quote. It was John Howe that really started to push the idea that the Whig leadership was behind Captain Kidd. Now, at the time, this was still just kind of a wild conspiracy theory. John Howe may have been privy to some private information, but publicly, nobody had any evidence to prove that the Whigs were really behind all of this. Due to that, a lot of Whigs painted him as, you know, a scandal monger. But of course, he was right. Well, sort of. It was the Whig Party, or leading members within the party, that got Captain Kidd his ship, that got him that commission to hunt pirates, but there was this idea that Captain Kidd was actually sent out to prey on English shipping. And that's crazy, right? Well, probably. But remember here, the Tories are synonymous with the East India Company. All of those men who were purged from the Navy and the Army and government service, they all took positions in or bought stock in the East India Company. Moreover, it was something of a legal way to build a privately owned Navy and a privately owned Army and a privately owned source of revenue. A state within a state within a state. So when John Howe thunders about the king and the Whigs going after our shipping, he's not talking about English shipping, he's talking about company shipping, and all the right people heard what he was saying loud and clear.
0: even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at Chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's Chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. Revoid prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummidge, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change but it's also a story about people, populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. Now,
1: William Kidd was kind of a wedge issue. You know what those are, right? It's a big public issue that's emotionally charged, that gets people riled up, but also kind of signifies what your positions on a ton of other topics might be. Abortion rights and gun control are two that are prominent today. A few years back, gay marriage. Years before that, prohibition. And years before that, slavery. Those are big wedge issues. Some of the less public, but perhaps more important policies hidden by the wedge issue that was Captain Kidd, were things like land in Ireland. After the war ended, a bunch of land that had belonged to Irish lords was forfeited to the crown of England, since those lords had rebelled against the crown. Those lands were William's to do with as he pleased, and this is the important bit here, he handed those lands over to Dutch aristocrats. A big part of the reason he did so was to maintain a balance of power in the Parliament and to kind of placate the Irish. They weren't exactly happy about a bunch of Dutchmen owning large tracts of land in their home country, but it was better than more Englishmen. Still, this move to hand a bunch of Ireland to the Dutch didn't sit well with anyone it wasn't even clear if king william was allowed to do that you know is that legal but king william made it legal now even the Whigs weren't crazy about this fairly authoritarian move on the king's part but more and more they were backed into a corner Because of William Kidd, this big, prominent public wedge issue, they almost had to support King William, whatever the issue happened to be. But then the Parliament began to hear even more troubling rumors. There was talk that the King and the High Lord of the Admiralty, the Earl of Orford, had issued a pardon to yet another prominent pirate. The High Lord of the Admiralty, the Earl of Orford, was a member of that whig junto we talked about, a coalition that the Tories called the Five Tyrannizing Lords. All the talk in London had it that Orford had talked the king into issuing a pardon for none other than Robert Cutlass Culliford, almost as notorious a pirate as Kidd himself. The Parliament was furious at this. It was getting out of hand. Now, there were two of them. All of this, this mountain of denunciation, began to loom over the Whigs and the King. As William Kidd drew closer and closer to London, that sword of Damocles was hanging dangerously low. In a session of the Parliament, the Tories openly accused Captain Kidd's patrons So, a bunch of powerful Whig nobles of attacking, wink-wink, English trade. They said, quote, If the grantees begged only the goods of the pirates, they begged frivolously and ridiculously. No doubt their aim was at the merchant's goods taken by pirates. End quote. Now, I actually agree with that. You know, it was... Madness, really, to think that Captain Kidd was going to come back with a ship full of pirate booty he had captured from men he arrested. That's an insane thing to hope for. Now, I've always operated under the assumption that this hope stemmed from an ignorance about the way things actually worked among the pirates of the round. You know, the equal shares, the pirate fences on St. Mary's. These weren't things that were clearly known about yet, but what if it wasn't ignorance? What if the Tories were right? What if it was a grand conspiracy to undermine the East India Company? If that was, in fact, the king's plan, that would be treason. So these Tories were accusing the king of treasonous behavior, And, if they had their way, the Parliament would decide his fate. (laughs) Jesus Christ. (laughs) See, King William's progressive policies, his hands-off approach to rule, meant that the king really couldn't just override the Parliament anymore. And that's all a fun counterfactual to play with. Maybe the king was, in fact, a treasonous dog, but that's not what was happening. Remember, Captain Kidd went out of his way over and over again to avoid any kind of conflict with the company. He did a bunch of dumb, dangerous stuff that really upset the company, but that had more to do with his own ego than any desire to, you know, seize company shipping. If... Captain Kidd had indeed been ordered to attack company ships, or even just English ships. He failed miserably. You know, while the Tories are thundering away in the House of Commons about all of these horrible treasonous dealings, I mean, his biggest crime against the company was failing to salute them in port. And I think the Tories kind of knew that some of their accusations were a bit... out there. See, they wanted to hold a vote about all of these issues they had been raising for the past several weeks, and they were sure to hold it before Captain Kidd arrived in England. The crux of the vote went something like this. Was it dishonorable for Lord Bellamont and the other Whig Lords to accept the goods that Captain Kidd obtained while in the Indian Ocean, it's a roundabout accusation. It's an attempt to set the precedent for dishonorable dealings, an attempt to really grab the reins of this proceeding before it even gets started. But in the end, the commons found 133 to 189 that it had not been dishonorable. The king and the Whigs lived to fight another day. Now, I had originally intended to talk more today about Captain Kidd's voyage to England, but there really wasn't a lot of drama there to discuss. The big story is that he was given pen and paper with which to write letters, and he did so, 25 letters on the voyage, some of which are going to become very important in the days to come. But beyond that, there was... You know, no shipwreck, no mutiny, not much to talk about. Until almost the end of the voyage. As they approached England, Captain Wynne managed to just miss the English Channel. It's not really as uncommon as it sounds, especially when the winds are contrary and the sky is cloudy, which in that part of the Atlantic is nearly all the time. They veered too far to the north and headed up into the Bristol Channel in the west of England. And then those contrary winds shifted yet again and pushed the advice up onto the sands of Lundy Island. Another happy landing. It wasn't a shipwreck exactly. They could get free eventually, but it would take some work. In the meantime, Captain Wynn sent a messenger over to Lundy Island who then took a ferry over to Bristol, and then hired a series of post-horses to get to London. It was a long, arduous, and fast voyage. And when he arrived, his message was taken directly to the Lord High Admiral, as well as the Secretary of State, James Vernon, both of whom were very prominent Whigs who had a personal interest in Captain Kidd. And at this point, though very few people in England actually knew it, a race had begun. Whosoever controlled Captain Kidd could control the narrative, and the Whigs had a huge advantage here. I mean, they actually had Captain Kidd in their custody, and Captain Wynne was a loyalist to the Whigs. So they dispatched messengers to every port at which the advice, once she got free, might make landfall, orders that Captain Kidd was to remain incommunicado. No one was to be allowed on board. No one should even know that Captain Kidd was there. More importantly, when the advice arrived at the Downs, the approach to London, John Cheek was going to meet them on board the Catherine. Captain Kidd was to be brought aboard his ship, at which point Cheek would undoubtedly say, Hello there, and he would be put under the personal custody of John Cheek. That's the same guy that brought in Robert Culliford last time. All of which will go smoothly. Next time, we're going to look at Captain Kidd's first days in a brand new, very old prison. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show. All of our patrons on Patreon, everybody who has left us ratings or reviews, and everybody who has recommended this show. You all make it possible. Thank you. The Pirate History Podcast is a member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you'd like to check out some of their other fine shows, like The Sit Down, a mafia history podcast, you can do so at airwavemedia.com. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you certainly can do so at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening.